turn our attention now to God's Word. And this morning, we are in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. You may or may not know this is the month of Ramadan in uh, the religion of Islam. It is a month of fasting when during the daylight hours, uh, good Muslims, even not so good Muslims all over the world, uh, abstain from everything during the daylight hours in a complete fast. Their goal is to reevaluate their lives before Allah and refocus themselves spiritually. And on one level, as we know that that is the case, we should know this is a time that as Christians we should be praying for them. Let, let me just say uh, publicly, hopefully what you have discerned from my preaching over the years, and that is this, we should never despise our Muslim neighbors. We should never despise Muslims around the world. The only thing that we should despise about Islam is the fact that a false god is receiving the worship that is due the one true living God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we do not despise the people. In fact, this is a time when we should be praying for them. If they are at all sincere in their desire to seek after God, then I believe God can speak to them, to call them out of the darkness that is Islam into the light of faith in Jesus Christ. Pray that he would expose them to the printed word that they would hear and read and believe about Christ. Pray that they would be exposed to some kind of media information, whether it's video or audio or whatever it is, but that they would hear the gospel and that he would call them to faith. Pray that they would find Christians who would love them enough to open their mouths and to share the word of Christ. Pray for Muslims during Ramadan as they seek God and as they fast. Because we're in a sermon series on fasting, we should not just pray for them, but we should probably be asking ourselves this. How is what we are thinking about doing in terms of Christian fasting different from the kind of fast that the Muslims are engaging in right now? Is there a difference between Muslim fasting and Christian fasting? The truth of the matter is, no one, humanly speaking, no one really knows where fasting originated. Certainly we can look in the Bible and see the first time that it takes place. But God never says, here's what a fast is and here's why you should do it and here's how you should do it. We don't have that information. Furthermore, what we know is that virtually every society is in some way touched by fasting. Not just for religious reasons, but for non-religious reasons as well. Nevertheless, probably religious reasons are the dominant reasons why people fast. We see uh, Jews who fast in the Old Testament still fasting today. Hindus, American Indians, original peoples in Canada, animists in Africa, all over the world people are fasting. And a question we should ask ourselves is, when we think about Christian fasting, is there anything distinct about it other than the name? Now that question becomes all the more difficult today because when we take it out of the abstract, when we take it out of the theoretical, we actually look at Christians. When we look at Christians in the church, particularly in this country, the, the idea, the question of fasting, frankly, may never come up. It is, we, are, we are not a church that is marked by fasting. And so a fundamental question then must be asked, why should Christians fast, if at all? Is it appropriate for Christians to fast? Is it something God expects? Or even delights in. We began answering that question last week when we saw that fasting is meant to be a sign of our hunger for God. 
that it is meant to be coupled with prayer as we desperately seek after him. And the goal of prayer and fasting is not to somehow strong-arm God, <coughs> to present ourselves as willful beings, stubborn, unwilling to yield and eat something until God answers our request. Quite the opposite. It's meant to show how much we long for God to be with us and for us to be with him. From Acts 13, we saw that many of the decisive moments in God's plan for his people throughout history has come as a result of his people praying and fasting together. And this morning we want to continue to answer those why questions. Why should Christians fast? Why is it different from among all the other kinds of fasts in the world today? One of the things that we will see is that Christians should fast and pray and that there is something that makes it unique among all the other fastings in the world. And we will see this from the lips of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 9. So I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. The apostle writes, Then the disciples of John came to him, that is, came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed." But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Like any good thing that God gives to us, our sinful hearts are capable of distorting it. And that is true with fasting. In order to make proper use of God's good gifts, we need to understand them. So we need to understand why fasting might be helpful to us. We understand what fasting says about our relationship with God. And this morning, Jesus gives us both instructions and corrections in regards to our thinking and our practicing of fasting itself. And what we see is that uh, Christian fasting is something uniquely Christian. And in fact, we see three things that emerge from what Jesus says about why Christian fasting is even different from Old Testament fasting, not just biblical fasting, but Christian fasting. Three ways in which it is unique and different among all others. And the first thing that we see is this. Christian fasting is Christ-centered. Christian fasting is Christ-centered. Now, on one level, that should be obvious, right? If we're calling it Christian fasting, it should be Christ-centered. But it's more than just the name. You can say, I'm, I'm practicing Christian fasting, and yet fast in such a way that it's not Christ-centered at all. What's the difference? Well, let me show you from our text. Again, the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, first of all, let me not assume anything. Uh, Let me not assume that you know who John is in this passage. Let me not assume that you know who his disciples are in this passage. These are disciples of John the Baptist. This was Jesus' cousin, but more importantly, he was the prophetic forerunner of the Messiah. He came preaching a message of repentance, causing the people to make themselves ready in order for the coming of their Messiah. John was a Baptist, not because of any church denomination, Don't let anyone fool you and say John was the first Baptist of a long line of Baptists up till today. That's bad history, okay? Uh, John was a Baptist because he was the one who baptized people. 
there was ritual cleansings and baptisms, but he was the one that actively got in the river and said, you repent of your sins, come down here and visibly display the cleansing that God gives by renewing your commitment to God through this public profession of your faith and repentance. He was John the baptizer. And John had disciples. As a prophet, there were those that gathered around him who desired to learn from him in more intense ways and even to help spread his message. To point people back to John and the baptism, more importantly, the repentance that he was advocating. And so John's disciples come with the Pharisees. And again, the Pharisees have no official standing in the people of Israel's life. Instead, they were, um, if I can offend some people, they were the evangelicals of their day. They were the back to the Bible people. Let's go back to the law. Let's do what the law says. The problem was they didn't really want to do what the law said. They wanted to earn their place with God by doing what the law said. And so they didn't just obey the law. They made laws to help them obey the laws. And those laws to help them obey the laws became on par with the laws of God. And therefore they became legalists. Now, they didn't just say, we're working our way towards God. That wasn't their frame of mind. They would say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm a good Jew. And he has called me to have a love for his word. Nevertheless, I am completing the picture. It is my working and obedience faithfully that will bring me into the presence of God on the final day. This is why Jesus often talks about the Pharisees and parables and, and, and sometimes even the gospel authors. And they will say, seeking to justify themselves. The Pharisees asked Jesus a question. So you have uh, two very different groups of people. Nevertheless, they are known for the same thing. Righteousness. Righteousness. Both groups were known for their apparent godliness. And they fast. They fast all the time. And now they look at Jesus' disciples and they're not fasting. And so they're thinking, what's going on? How come... How come you guys aren't fasting? Jesus, if he is the Messiah, he is the the true Israel, the embodiment of all that God's people is meant to be, to call them back to righteousness. And yet this very common, this very important practice of fasting, he's not doing it and his disciples aren't doing. Why is this? What is going on here? You need to remember, first of all, that their idea of fasting would have been completely, completely grounded in their understanding of the Old Testament and the Old Testament fast. There's only one fast required by the law, one on the Day of Atonement that you can read about in Exodus 20. However, at various times and in various ways, individuals and groups of individuals took it upon themselves to fast for various reasons. And when you look throughout the New Testament, that the central concern for fasting was this, mourning. Not as in the sun rising, but as in boohoo tears coming down. Mourning with a U. People mourn the death of a loved one or a a great leader. They mourn some calamity that would befall them as a people or a nation or a tribe. And many times they actually mourn the sinfulness of their hearts and the sinfulness of the people. And so all of that is wrapped up in their mind and in the practicing of fasting among these two groups. It is an expression of an attitude of sobriety and solemnity in the spiritual realm. But they saw none of that in Jesus' disciples. So that Jesus' disciples were irreverent in some way. But they lacked the kind of solemnity and sobriety that marked John's disciples and that of the Pharisees. And so they're asking him, why don't your disciples fast? And in typical Jesus 
style, he answers a question with a question. Why don't your disciples fast? Jesus answers verse 15. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, at one level, you don't have to have a degree in Middle Eastern studies to get this. I mean, just think about the weddings you have been at. Aside from the occasional ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, no one's crying, mourning tears at a wedding. You know what I'm saying? No one's wearing black to the wedding except for uh, the, the, the preacher and sometimes uh, the, the, the groomsman. Although I've always been confused if the bride wears white to symbolize purity, why in the world is the minister and the men in black? I don't get that. But that's, that, that's for another day. My point is you don't mourn at weddings. You, 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 you cry tears of joy and happiness as these as couples beginning their, their new life together. Furthermore, no one goes around fasting. Some of the best meals I've ever had have been at wedding receptions where uh, the, the, the bride and the groom said, look, man, it's all on us today. Have a great time. And you're just like, this is amazing. Uh, go to uh, a, 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 an Eastern culture wedding sometime. I mean, they know how to put on a spread. There's food everywhere. And if you like curry, you're in seventh heaven. Okay? And, uh, and thankfully, I like curry. And so, so, the, so, the, so Jesus' point here is he's, he's focused them away from the idea of mourning and solemnity and sobriety, and he's putting forward this imagery of, of frankly, unbridled joy, of, of, of celebration, of feasting, not fasting. In fact, what you may not know is that unlike typical weddings today where the husband and the wife have a great celebration and then they're off by themselves for the honeymoon, in Jesus' day, the culture was such that the married couple actually hosted a week of feasting and celebration for all their guests. So they would literally come in out of town and spend a week with the new bride and groom. And you thought your wedding was expensive. Uh, this is part of the reason why when Jesus is at the wedding, right, uh, they've run out of the good wine. They, they put it all out first, and the people have been apparently enjoying the wine quite a bit. And now they're kind of down to the, uh, you know, the everyday stuff. And Jesus' mother comes and Jesus says, hey, you, you going to do something about this? Uh, because it's not a one-day event. It's day after day after day of celebrating. In fact, the closest friends of the couple were often called guests of the bridegroom. And the rabbinical law said this, all in attendance of the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observance, which would lessen their joy. In other words... There is no fasting if you're at the wedding. There is no giving up anything. There is no practice of Jewish religion if it's going to take away from your joy for the bride and the bridegroom. So these guys come with all of this understanding of fasting involving mourning and seriousness. And Jesus answers by pointing them to a place of joy and continuous celebration. Now, what, how does that work? What does the wedding have to do with fasting? Again, Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? What he is, what he is highlighting is the reality that he as the Messiah, after hundreds of years of increasing expectation, he has finally arrived to be with his people. And his coming is like that of a bridegroom to a wedding feast. It is the time when people applaud and they celebrate and they backslap and they hug and they kiss and they weep tears of joy because the day has finally arrived. The bridegroom is there. Jesus is, is implicitly saying, I am the bridegroom of Israel. 
I am God in the flesh here after years of dreaming and hoping and longing. I have arrived. And so as the light of the new covenant was dawning upon the people of Israel, shining as it were out of the eyes of their Savior, this was something too beautiful and joyous for fasting. As this simple man of Galilee, veiling, the fl- veiling in flesh the eternal glory of God had come, he says, this is a time of joy, not mourning. More than that, though, the point that is being made is that the coming of Christ has now fundamentally changed the way people should think about how they live their life before God, not least of which the practice of fasting It is no longer simply a God-centered practice, as good as that was. Now it is explicitly meant to be a Christ-centered practice. Christian fasting, then, is Christ-centered. It means it has Christ at its very center, at its core. Jesus is saying the unexpected joy of God's presence that he brings as the Messiah made any thoughts of fasting completely irrelevant while he was with his disciples. But he's not with us now in that sense, is he? Can't reach out and touch him. Can't, can't sit down next to him when he's out in the field asleep at night because he doesn't have a place to lay his head. You, 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 cannot, you cannot get a little bit closer to Jesus to get warmed up. Can't do that. So what about us? He, he, does that mean now that, that we don't fast? No, in fact, just the opposite. Jesus didn't just teach that the fasting for the people of God was all about him. He also explained when and how that fasting would take place. And he said it was now. Now was the time to fast. This leads us to the second thing that we see this morning from the text, and that is this. Christian fasting is future-focused. It is future-focused. Notice again what Jesus says. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. First of all, notice there is an implicit command here to fast. By implicit, I mean Jesus nowhere says, my disciples should fast. Paul never says Christians should fast. But there is an expectation that will be a normal part of the life of his people. The expectation is that one day fasting will be prevalent among them. But not while he was there during the incarnation. It was afterwards when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. Jesus says. It's only after his death and his resurrection, when he returned to the presence of his heavenly Father, it's then that Jesus says his disciples will abstain from food and other good gifts. The time of Jesus' ascension, the time of his second coming, the time that is now is the time of Christian fasting. Why? Because Jesus is not with us. Now, in some sense, he is with us, isn't he? He is with us through His Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, which is also called the Spirit of Jesus. And that is no small thing. He is an amazing gift, enabling us to live as God's adopted children, experiencing comfort and assurance in our walk with Him, that we might know we are truly God's people. And yet, and yet, how much better will it be to stand face to face with our Savior? How much more comforting will it be? How much more glorious to touch and to hold and to kiss the face of the one who offered up his life as a bloody sacrifice cursed by God to make us right with God? How much better to grab hold of the one who by being cut off from God 
cause us to be cleansed by God from all of our sin and have a righteousness that is not our own. This is why even Paul can say in Philippians 1 that as good as it is for him to be alive and ministering and building up God's church, it is far better for him to depart and be with Christ. The year between my engagement to Melinda and our marriage seemed like a long one. I'm sure there was simply... Uh, the normal 365 days and a couple extra that, that was involved, but it seemed extraordinary long because after I asked her to marry me over spring break, and by God's grace she said yes, a few weeks later I was gone for the whole summer. I spent three weeks in Peru on a mission trip, I spent ten weeks in Kalamazoo in an internship, and then I spent a final week, literally drove from Michigan straight to Cedarville College, now Cedarville University, and spent a week of uh, resident assistant training before college began and made that summer seem incredibly long and melinda not some of you young ladies need to start taking notes at this point uh, melinda sat down after i had proposed and she knew the plans and she began writing out little notes and cards for me and before peru and before kalamazoo she gave me this this stack of cards each one on the outside was dated and the firm intention and commitment and explicit instruction was do not open it before the date and i said okay i i I can do that every week sometimes twice a week then over the course of that summer i would have a little note from her that i could open telling me how much she loved me and how much she was looking forward to our wedding day and our new life together and as much as i wanted to be with her i couldn't i was out of the country i was out of the state i couldn't even call her as much as i wanted to given the conflicting schedules of the summer but but at the end of the day, whether it was on a, on a dirt floor out in a local seminary in Peru, or whether it was in a hotel down there on the weekends in the edge of the jungle, or whether it was in the guest home in Kalamazoo, I could get off by myself, and I could pull out those letters, and I could read. And I could bask in the glory of the promise and the affection that was showed to me there. I could, I could open up the envelopes and smell the perfume that she had sprayed on there and be reminded of, of my love for her and my longing to be with her. In fact, it made me look all the more forward. Those separated. The promises and assurances of her love and unending affection made me long all the more for the day of our wedding, and our new life together. Loved ones, this is what Christian fasting is all about. This is why Christian fasting is future-focused. It causes us to long, we should already, long and ache and hunger for the return of Christ so that we can be with him even as we are now with one another face-to-face. We should want more of him, so much more that we are willing to fast from food and other good things in order to spend time with him the only way we can now, through spirit-empowered, driven times of prayer and Bible reading. In many ways, then, this makes fasting what I call the asymmetrical handmaiding of the Lord's Supper. Now you say, what in the world does that mean? Well, what it means is fasting and the Lord's table, they go hand in hand as complementary spiritual activities, and yet they function in opposite ways. In just a few minutes, we're going to partake of the table. 
It is a simple meal of bread and wine that Jesus has instructed us to do. He says, in order to remember him. It is a way for us regularly to gather together as his people, as the church, to preach the gospel to one another. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, we are saying to one another, I remember Christ's death for me. I remember his poured out blood. I remember his broken body. I remember the physical suffering that pointed to the more important, more essential spiritual suffering that he experienced under the mighty hand of God for my sins and the sins of his people as the perfect atoning sacrifice. I am one of his people. I have trusted in Christ. I am one of his disciples. And I am continuing. I am continuing to walk by faith in the Son of God who gave his life for me. That is what the table is about. That is what the table is about. It is a meal that looks back to Christ and what he has done for us. But fasting looks forward. Fasting looks to the future. It looks to the end when the risen Christ will return, subjecting every rebel power under his feet, ruling and reigning in righteousness over all things, establishing a new heaven and a new earth where God and his people will dwell forever in a glorious, unending, but ever-increasing world of love for one another. It looks forward to the consummation of all of God's promises in their fullness as the Lord has finished making ready the bride, that is, the church, for the bridegroom, which is Christ. On that day, she will be holy and blameless without any blemish of sin and presented to Christ as the gift that is due him for his work as the Messiah. And we fast because we long for that day to come sooner. We give up food in order to hear the word of Christ. And our hearts should race when we read things like John 14 where Jesus says, I will come again. And we should be provoked to pray like the apostle at the end of Revelation. Then come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray like Jesus himself taught, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At the same time, in Luke 18, Jesus also asked this important question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus returns, what will he find? Will he find an ugly bride? A church that has indulged itself in sinful, selfish desires, making herself bloated with pride, becoming stained with sin? Will he find a lazy church who has failed to joyfully, sacrificially, lovingly take up the desire of the bridegroom and go and make disciples? Therefore, even as we fast in order to pray harder for the Lord to return that our joy may be full, even now, even now we fast and pray for a revived church. We fast and pray for a faithful church. We fast and pray for a church that is ready to meet its king. It's Savior, it's Lord. This leads us to the last thing we want to see this morning. Christian fasting is Christ-centered. It is future-focused. And from our text, we also see how it is kingdom-driven. Christian fasting is kingdom-driven. Disciples of John come to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Jesus ends his response with this imagery of the cloth and the wineskins. Now, if you're like me, you've probably never had a wineskin. You've probably never seen a wineskin. You've probably never used a wineskin. We have this modern invention called bottles today. Uh, and if you don't know what it is, go to Meyer next to the pop. You'll see all kinds of them. But we still wear clothes. And back in the day, we used to even patch up our clothes. Maybe some of you still do. What does Jesus say? You cannot put a piece of new material over an old garment to patch a hole. The old garment has been washed several times. It has shrunk up already. The new patch of material, when you wash, it will also shrink up, and it's going to cause a worse tear as it pulls away from the garment. Now, uh, my mom never used sewed-on patches. She most often used the iron-on patches. And guess what? still happened. Okay? Uh, like all good boys, I used to wear the knees out of my pants. And rather than buy a new pair of pants, we got these nifty patches that she would iron on, and, hey, you're good to go. And I didn't care much. The only problem was you began washing, and guess what? They just pull right away. And in that case, she hadn't sewn anything. The tear wasn't necessarily worse, but the patch came off. In other words, the principle that they knew in the first century still works today. And likewise, Jesus says you can't put new wine into old wineskins. Unlike the bottles that we use today for our beverages, these skins were literally made of skins, of tanned animal skins. And eventually, like all animal skin, it began to dry out more and more. And when it was really old, if you tried to put new wine into the old wine skin, as it began to ferment and expand within the skin, the skin was already old and worn out and dried out and brittle. It would actually break, and you'd lose everything. You'd lose your wine skin, and you'd also lose the wine itself. And therefore, Jesus is saying, you know you don't do these things. This is, this, you know from common experience, you guys, that never happens. But the question is, why is he saying this? What does this have to do with the question that was asked him about fasting? I think what Jesus is getting at here is the unshrunk cloth and the new wine represent the new reality that has come with Christ and his kingdom. And you cannot fit anything old into this new mold. The bridegroom has already come. The Messiah is now in our midst. And that isn't just temporary. He is here and then he is gone, but he left a lasting effect in this world. The kingdom of God did not just come and vanish with him. The kingdom of God came and was established and continues to move forward throughout all the ends of the earth. When Jesus came and the kingdom broke into this world, it did not go away. It was established permanently so that Paul says the new creation itself is already dawning and coming about as, even as the old is groaning and straining because it's in its final death throes. Christ's reigning power is increasingly felt as the gospel is proclaimed and he is recognized as Lord by his people, which is meant to be an ever-expanding people. The church is never supposed to stay the same in terms of size, of holiness, of anything. The gospel continues to grow out and God's kingdom continues to expand as more and more people say, yes, I believe Jesus is Lord. This is the new wine. And Jesus says the old wineskins can't contain it. That is, the old ideas and practices that were associated with the old covenant, specifically even here the ideas of fasting, cannot hold the new power that is meant to be the kingdom of God. 
Why? Because all those things are predicated on the, on the fact that Christ had not yet come. The sacrifice wasn't yet given. The king had not yet arrived. The blood of the Messiah had not yet been spilt. The law had not yet been fulfilled. The temple veil had not yet been torn in two. The spirit had not yet been poured out in fullness on God's people. The gathering together of Jews and Gentiles as one new man in Christ had not yet happened. Therefore, the old covenant, including old covenant fasting, cannot be retrofitted into the kingdom. Something gloriously new has happened. That is all built on the coming of Christ. That means the old ways of fasting cannot continue in the new kingdom that belongs to Jesus. But notice, that doesn't mean fasting goes away. No, it simply means that new wineskins are needed to go along with this new kingdom. A new practice of fasting is meant to accompany the kingdom. And this is where we are today, standing in the gap between what Christ has already accomplished and what he promises to finish on the coming day. Already the decisive blow against sin, death, and Satan has already been delivered. The decisive act of salvation has come. This is why our fasting is fundamentally different. It is not a fasting of mourning. It is a fasting of triumph because Christ has triumphed. John Piper is surely right when he says this. We have tasted the powers of the age to come and our fasting is not new because we are hungry for something we have not experienced, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying, we must have all that it is possible to have. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we've never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by His Spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. The new fasting, Christian fasting, is a hunger for all the fullness of God, aroused by the aroma of Jesus' love and by the taste of God's goodness and the gospel of Christ. If that's true, if that is our experience then part of our fasting will be for the work of the kingdom of Christ. It will be our desire to fast from food and other good gifts that are not inherently sinful, that we might pray more, that we might work harder, that we might see more and more of Christ's kingdom become visible in this world. The dream of the American culture largely embodies two things, comfort and recognition. Comfort that comes from wealth, recognition that comes from power, and so many other things that are associated with it. That's what we're told to seek all throughout our life, from school and families, even commercials. It's built into the fabric of our cultural mindset. Some of you have seen and are fans of the Indiana Jones movies, and although I've never understood why they did it, it's pretty confusing. The second movie chronologically takes place before the first movie. So in the second movie, you find a, a kind of younger, rawler, less experienced Indiana Jones. And, and, and his buddy, Short Round, his companion that's traveling with him, he asks him basically, why do you do all these things? Why, why do you travel around the world? Why do you get beat up? Why do you actually get slipped poison and got to fight your way to get the, the, the antidote? I mean, what, what is all this for? And Indiana Jones just leans back and says, fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. Isn't that the American dream? fortune and glory, comfort and recognition. But the reality is that it's toxic to our spiritual life because that puts us at odds with the one who deserves glory 
Christ himself. Pursuing the American dream pulls us away from our calling as Christians in Christ. Christ says, leave your kingdom behind. Come be a part of my kingdom. Work for my kingdom. Give up comfort and recognition in this life because you will share a far greater comfort and recognition with me in the life to come. Christian fasting is about forsaking good things for better things. It's about giving up whatever we can to give and pray and train and serve harder for the kingdom of our Savior. It's about looking ahead to the return of our Savior, longing for his coming and praying for his bride until he comes. It's about seeing the world and everything in it with new eyes, eyes opened by the beauty of our Savior. He has come and it changes Father, I pray that the words of Christ would ring true in our minds and our hearts, that they would resonate so that we would live for the kingdom of your Son and not our own little kingdom. Father, I pray that this would even be be seen in our fasting. That, God, we would so long for the return of your Son that we would even now give up just about anything to spend more time with him and seek the glory of his name in this world. Father, I pray that for those of us who have not thought much about fasting, have not thought even much about what it means to to truly live a a Christ-centered life that sees everything as being different because of his coming, God, that you would be patient with us. Be slowly, patiently, deliberately working in our minds and our hearts to reshape us into the image of your Son. To conform us out of the, the, the mold this world is trying to put us in. That we might truly be your people. We ask this for the sake of your Son, whose glory we desire, whose kingdom we delight in. We pray these things for Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.